0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Unfinished Tales. <clears throat> As we try to finish uh, Turin today, uh, we will uh, we will see about that. Um, two announcements I wanted to make uh, first uh, here at the beginning of class before we start. First, um, I, I, uh, an important reminder: that we have one the first of our three bonus Q and A sessions for the Unfinished Tales class tomorrow afternoon. That is tomorrow at four p.m. Eastern time, um, uh, and all the long suffering Europeans said hooray. Um. But um, anyway, so we're going to do that tomorrow afternoon at four p.m. Eastern time. Uh, one irregularity I should point out about this: I've had to make a change. Uh, the time is the day and time is remaining the same, but the actual link that we're using uh, is going to be different. Um, so, um, actually, if you've registered, I'm was going to send you an email uh, to uh, give you the new link that we have to switch to. Um, I apologize for any. Uh, Confusion there, um, but uh, but anyway. So that that is going to be happening. Nevertheless, tomorrow at four o'clock. Um, I know that many of you have some of you have sent me questions by email. Uh, many of you have uh, been asking good questions or raising really interesting topics during our um, during our sessions. I will try to get to as many of those as I can. Uh, obviously, the Q and A session is going to be focused primarily upon uh, Tour and Turin. Um, If I don't quite get through everything from tonight, not that I think that's likely, but if that were to happen, uh, then I'd probably finish the last couple slides uh, on tomorrow's class as well. uh, Timothy asks, will the link be posted on the MythGuard.org site, uh, the UT page? Yes, indeed it will. There is currently a, a link. The link that is currently there is the wrong... I just realized like an hour ago that I have to change the link. Um, so uh, I'll be replacing that link right after class. Um, so I'll, I will, you know, definitely that will be the one to do uh, soon. Not Again, not right now, but soon. Um, and yes, Brian, the Q&As will be recorded and posted uh, by the same mechanism. They will appear uh, on the uh, MythGuard iTunes podcast and RSS feed. They will be posted as links on the Unfinished Tales uh, course page on the MythGuard.org site, and they will also be posted to the iTunes U class. So um, the Q&As will be, will be in that respect, treated just like everything else. So. Yes, and Yana, you absolutely can still email questions as well. Um, I'm going to try to gather as many questions uh, uh, as I reasonably think I can answer uh, during class time, um, and I'll be posting some of them up so everybody can see those as well. So anyway, yep, that's definitely what will be happening. So okay. That's the first announcement. The second announcement is uh, Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, um, or at whatever time that happens to be in your particular time zone. We are having the second episode of Riddles in the Dark, Season 3. For those of you who missed uh, the Season 1 episode, that ended up actually being a really uh, fun episode. Uh, Trish and Dave and I had a sort of a larger theoretical discussion about adaptation and uh, and analysis, and in particular, um, I was responding, sort of following up... My reactions podcast, and uh, uh, my favorite part, um, uh, what I kind of think in retrospect was sort of the most important part of that discussion, I felt something really, uh, really uh, interesting, uh, a really interesting concept came out of that podcast. Uh, That is, um, I had been toying around with the the concept, this uh, literary uh, theory, or or, or, a term that I coined in that episode uh, called Crit Fiction, which... The more I have worked through and thought through and talked about with other people, the more I like it. Um, and you know, For those of you who missed it, basically the concept is uh, anybody who responds to a work of art, whether it be a book or a film or anything, not by criticizing the work itself, but by guessing or postulating uh, something about the biography of the person or the intentions of the author. That person is not doing analysis of the text they're engaging in crit fiction, which is like fan fiction except not respectable. Uh, fan fiction is the imaginative engagement with somebody else's work. crit fiction is uh, 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 well largely masturbatory but uh, basically again so so that is to say if you when you read a passage of a work of literature and you say, Uh, gosh, that was really rushed, or gosh, that's a really half-hearted passage. You're not analyzing the passage. You've observed that there's something wrong with it, that there's something that you don't like about it, that that there's something lacking in that passage. But instead of engaging with it, you pull back from the text itself, and you just make a guess about what was or was not going on in the mind or heart of the person who wrote it. Um, That's sloppy. Almost all people do this. Almost all critics do this. And it was, of course, reactions uh, to The Desolation of Smaug that has prompted me. Uh, to uh, uh, <laughs> that has prompted me uh, to uh, to uh, um, devise this 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 theory. Um, uh, Roy was just asking me, "Are the Q and A sessions a money grab? Am I pandering to teenage boys?" Exactly, Roy. Yeah, that's 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 uh, that's precisely it. Uh, so anyway, it's just I, that was my that was my favorite uh, topic of discussion in. Riddles in the Dark, episode one, In episode two, we're going to be looking at some of the, uh, you know, we're going to be kind of following up um, the references that we made in the first episode to really uh, not just sort of spending all of our time observing what is similar or different between the film treatment of The Hobbit and, uh, and the book and, and Tolkien's developments of the book, but rather really thinking about the core of those things and, and some, some of the major themes and what both of them are really interested in and in comparing those things. So that we're going to do a little bit of that anyway um, on Friday, so it should be fun. So I encourage you guys to join me. Um, again, that's Friday 10 a.m. You can find the link on the Riddles in the Dark page. You can also find uh, the link... Um, I'll be posting it around various places, Um, so keep an eye out for that. Um, Finally, uh, I I had almost forgotten to make this announcement. For those of you who are wanting to engage in some chat amongst yourselves uh, during the class, if you want to take part in that uh, tradition of talking behind the teacher's back, uh, you are welcome to do that. We have just this week installed a new chat setup on the Mythgard.org site. So if you go to the Unfinished Tales page on Mythgard.org, just do a search for Mythgard and Unfinished Tales if you can't find it, if you, or rather if you don't already know where it is. Um, you will find in the bottom right-hand corner a link to a chat window, and you are welcome to join in uh, and chat with other students who will doubtless be chatting while we're uh, uh, talking here this evening. So, um, yeah, Yana, it's brand new. So we <clears throat> we have a totally new chat feature. There was a chat feature before, but it was very bad. Uh, now there's a new chat feature, which actually, uh, I-, I hope, should uh, be working well. So, Okay. Um <laughs> says the chat is currently a collection of incest puns this um uh, this doesn't surprise me at all actually uh but anyway so it, it which is as much as to say, if you really want to take part in the truly high-level intellectual conversation uh, that is going on, uh, please do uh, join in the chat window. Um, so anyhow, <laughs> uh, let us move on without further ado uh, to looking at Turin. And as we said, as I said at the end of class last time, um, I want to begin today by looking, actually going through and looking at his decisions—not every single one of his decisions, but a lot of them—and um, to, to sort of look at them carefully, look at sort of the factors that uh, are at play here in the Turin story. I mean, the big question, one of the big questions that people are always asking or thinking about Turin is essentially, well, how much of the disaster, you know, the sort of continually unfolding disaster that is the life of Turin, son of Hurin, how much of it is his fault? He makes a lot of really bad choices, um, but he's also, we're told at the beginning of the story, cursed by Morgoth. Where, you know, how do we see those two things, that is, the free choices that Turin makes, uh, and the curse of, 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 of Morgoth, how do those two things interact in Turin's life? So there are a couple uh, passages Before we get to the actual choices, that I wanted to draw your attention to tonight, because I found these really uh, popping out at me in some interesting ways uh, when I was reading through again this week. This is, uh, our first one here is Morwin. In Doriath. So, this is when they have heard the rumors about the fall of Nargothrond, and Morwen wants to go find out what happened uh, with, uh, with Turin. So, this is Thingol starting. This yeah. is a perilous matter, Lady of Dorlomen, and must be pondered. Such doubt may in truth be the work of Morgoth to draw us on to some rashness. But Morwin, being distraught, cried, "Rashness, Lord! If my son lurks in the woods, hungry; if he lingers in bonds; if his body lies unburied, then I would be rash. I would lose no hour to go to seek him." Lady of Dorlomen, said, "Thinko, that surely the son of Hurin, that surely the son of Hurin would not desire. Here would he think you better bestowed than in any other land that remains in the keeping of Melian." For Hurin's sake and Turin's, I will not have you wander abroad in the black peril of these days. "'You did not hold Turin from peril, but me you will hold from him,' cried Morwen. "'In the keeping of Melian, yes, a prisoner of the girdle, "'long did I hold back before I entered it, and now I rue it.' "'Nay, if you speak so, Lady of Dorlomen, said Thingol, "'know this, the girdle is open, free you came hither, Free, free you shall stay or go.' Then Melian, who had remained silent, spoke. Go not hence, Morwen. A true word you said. This doubt is of Morgoth. If you go, you go at his will. Fear of Morgoth will not withhold me from the call of my kin, Morwen answered. Okay. Uh, Morwen has some pretty... um, uh, has some pretty uh, uh, good moments this isn't one of them, uh, I would say. Um, to me, the, 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 the element here that I want to pay particular attention to is this question of, the, you know, such doubt may in truth be the work of Morgoth. Um, and, uh, and especially Melian's comment um, when she, she, she's not just speculating, right? She says quite confidently, go not hence. A true word you said, this doubt is of Morgoth. If you go, you go at his will. She is trying to make this... Clear. She says, okay, Morgoth is involved here, right? Note, Morgoth is not involved in her choice to go. She's choosing. But her choice is influenced by this doubt. What is driving her to go? What is impelling her to go? This doubt, this uncertainty, this rashness that she is, that she is leaping to. That, Melian says, you know, uh, 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 Morrowind speculates... Thingol endorses. Melian confirms that doubt is from Morgoth, right? So we. So in this. Instance, and, and it's not everywhere nearly so clear as this. This is actually I chose this passage because I think this is one of the moments where we can see that divide between the action of the curse of Morgoth on the one hand and the choice of the individuals on the other hand, a- acting much more clearly. We can see this the the lines I think between them much more clearly than we can almost anywhere else in this story. Um, but but again, we can see how they're interacting as well. She is she is choosing to she's. Doubting um, that what she is that, that in choosing the way she is choosing, it's not that her choice is determined by Morgoth, but in choosing what she's doing, she's going to end up furthering the will of Morgoth. This is what Thingol is foreboding. This is what Melian is predicting. Right? If you choose that your 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 choice is based on um, a really shaky foundation, and uh, notice how she turns that there at the end. Fear of Morgoth will not withhold me from the call of my kin, Morwin answered, right? No, Morwin, you just missed the point entirely. Um Fear of Morgoth will not withhold me from the call of my kin. The point is it's not your kin that's calling you. It's the curse of Morgoth that's calling you. Okay? Um it's not, you are not uh, rebelling against Morgoth, you're not taking a stand against Morgoth, you're not refusing to be bullied around by Morgoth by going, you're, you are in fact playing into his will by going. That is what Melian, clearly, is trying to communicate to her. As Dme says, her kin didn't call! Um... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> April says, M- "Mabong said he'd rather fight the wolf again than hang out with her." That's not exactly what he said. He's not. He's not like mm, Morwin Karkaroth, Gosh, uh, no, 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 no. It's not quite like that that bad. Um, but rather he thought the the pursuit of the wolf was a kind of a dodgy enterprise uh his trip to Nargothrond, he's like this is twice the nightmare that that, that 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 was that seemed like a prudent sensible and uh and uh and 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 sort of plain shooting thing to do compared to 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 this thing um uh Yeah, Scott says this seems to be a common theme that defying Morgoth plays into his plans. Yes, and Scott, I think we could even expand that further to say um, or or rather, I wouldn't expand it further but rather we can put that in parallel with the observation that Sador Labadol made in the beginning of the story, saying that he who flees from his doom ends up taking a shortcut to meet it, right? Um, Think about, this this of course comes back in a really uh, 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 sort of Moving, I think, line when he meets the elderly Sador again at the, uh, when he returns to Dor Loman. And Sador makes that comment about how much he and the others who have been remaining, the others of the aged uh, who have been remaining alive, who have been kept alive there in Dor Loman, envy those who were in the Hill of Slain. Um, that is, remember, he, he didn't want to fight in the Near Night, he, he, he came home. Um, he didn't want to be in the army anymore. Had he stayed in the army, yeah, he would have ended up in the Hill of Slain. All of the warriors of Do- dor except Hurin, ended up in the Hill of Slain. <clears throat> but later on he says that he, he, he is uh, envious of those who ended up in the Hill of Slain. That in seeking to avoid suffering, he ended up choosing a path which maximized rather than minimized his suffering. That, again, that pattern is that kind of pattern that we see quite a bit um, over the course of the story here. Um, yeah, Yana says, and so, so it continues, no one ever listens to Melian. I know, it's not like, you know, we have a really powerful Maya living here in Middle Earth, um, uh, who is giving people advice and is absolutely never, um, absolutely never, uh, uh. It's. I mean, seriously, what are the number of times anyone has listened to Melian? I guess Galadriel kind of did, in the sense of taking notes, but, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tom, wonderful point, wonderful point, Tom. Tom Hillman says, Funny, Morgoth does the same thing with Iluvatar. Every bit of Morgoth's defiance plays into Iluvatar's tune. Yeah, gosh, that is a parallel, isn't it? Um, that does seem to be one of the, uh, dominant recurring motifs about the relationship between the choice the choices made by somebody with free will and by and fate doom uh the plan the the tune as initially conceived by Aluvitar um yeah yeah um yeah good um <laughs> Brian is just pointing out how refreshing it is that Thingol appears to be Level-headed, and that his wife doesn't have to contradict him in this instance. That's true. That's, that's actually seems to be a fairly rare moment in the in the in the domestic life of Pingo and Melian, as far as we see it. Um, yeah, good. Um, uh, yes, sorry, there was another comment I wanted to. Oh, yes, Brent asked, "Why does she assume she's trapped there?" I don't see where she would get that idea from. Um, As far as where she got the idea from, I mean, we don't know exactly. It doesn't seem like a completely outlandish idea. Uh, That is to say, um, she knows for a fact that it's true of Gondolin. Um, uh, you may remember in the Silmarillion treatment of the story, when Hurin and Huor come back from Gondolin, um, the only thing that Hurin will say to anybody is only by an oath of secrecy were we allowed to return, um, so, you know, and that's all I'm gonna say right I'm not gonna say anything about where I was or anything else about it or anything like that um so this idea of uh highly secure hidden kingdoms of elves being a being a one way street is there's certainly some precedent for that um but uh but I actually am not really convinced from this passage here that Morwin really actually believed that. Um, She's distraught here, um, and seems to be kind of lashing out at Thingo and Melian. And again, what I see there is Thingo and Melian are telling her what I would suspect on one level she knows to be true, Um, and she's not responding to it uh, very well. I mean, again, that, uh, um, yes, a prisoner of the girdle. Long did I hold back before I entered it, and now I rue it. Um, that sounds to me like the words of an angry person who is struggling against someone who is speaking sense uh, to them. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, 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 um, so, so yeah, I, I think that there's, there's, um, yeah, Ethan says she's described as Faye. Um, I, I, I do think that that is, um, that's a, that's a, a complicated word. I am not sure that I even yet have what I feel is a really satisfying, intuitive understanding of what Tolkien characters really mean when they say, when they call somebody Fae. Um... Because it's applied to a bunch of different people in a bunch of different cases. And uh, I... Um, uh, I mean, I know the definition of it, but... But, of course, there's much more to the word than that. Um, part of being fae, thinking of all of the fey people we see in Tolkien... Uh, And, of course, I'm immediately thinking of uh, Feanor before his death, and Frodo in the Pass of Cirithungal, and Denethor before his pyre. Um, These are all referred to as fey. One thing that they all have in common is their immediate judgment, their immediate rational judgment is clouded. by some despair or by some hope, right? Remember, Frodo is described as fae when he, you know, f- thinks that he can just dash through the pass, right? It's not despair. It's, you know, sort of the headiness of escaping from the lair of of Shelob, which the, they didn't think they were going to get out of, uh, and then running off um, da- uh, uh, through the path. This is why... Um, Yes, Fey has something to do is associated with sort of seeking death or going 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 willingly towards death, but not but that's not it. I mean that's that's not a sufficient uh explanation of what a fey character is. Um but um uh, anyway, um again one thing that I think is a clear trend that I see in all of the characters who are described as being Fay is that kind of at the very least, they're not thinking straight. none of them are really thinking straight, certainly none of them are thinking um, are thinking rationally are thinking carefully about things um, uh, anyway, yeah, um, yeah yeah um. Yeah, um Yeah. As he Charlie says, uh Fae is in driven out of one's better senses, gripped by madness. Yes, but the flavor of madness isn't exactly the same. Um and I you know, what I'm sort of seeking for is what is the sort of the es- the essence of feyness in Tolkien's characters. Um because you can say that they're all gripped with a kind of madness, and I think that that's true in a sense, but in what sense? Um, because it's not the same senses, clearly, I think, with all characters. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I, my point is not to pause here and try to generalize about this too much, um, but, um, uh, just to be a little bit cautious about, um, uh, about the appearance of Fey. One thing by the way that I would be especially uh careful about is not to confuse F E Y Fey with F A Y, uh meaning, you know, something referring to uh to Fairy or to Fairies or even to uh the Valar as he used to use that word in his earlier writings. Um uh those are very different terms. Just wanna make sure that no one confuses those two things. Um but um Yeah, Jordan, I agree. Fingolfin riding off to challenge Morgoth. He's clearly fey in that moment, absolutely. That is certainly a fey thing to do. Um, uh, Yeah, good. Um, Okay, anyway... um, Let me move on here because, again, the point, larger point that I'm trying to make, I, wanna get, I don't want to get too bogged down. A, a couple of people were making comments about Morwin's pride and the stumbling block that Morwin's pride um, serves as here. I agree, that is clearly a feature, Um, that is clearly uh, a theme here, and we see that with Turin also, and we'll see that uh, in some other passages. But again, the the main thing I want to draw attention to here is the interaction between these two different elements, the choice of the individual and the way in which the Curse of Morgoth operates. Are there ways in which we can... uh, is there any way in which we can separate these two things and begin to see how they are interacting through this story? Um, here's another passage that I thought was interesting in this regard. This is Turin being brought into Brethel. Now therefore they lifted him with reverence and bore him to Ethel Brandir. And Brandir, coming out to meet them, wondered at the bier that they bore. Then drawing back the coverlet, he looked on the face of Turin, son of Hurin, and a dark shadow fell on his heart. O cruel men of Haleth, he cried, why did you bring back death from this man? With great labor you have brought hither the last bane of our people. But the woodman said, Nay, it is the Mormegil of Nargothrond, a mighty orc-slayer, and he shall be a great help to us if he lives. And were it not so, should we leave a man woe-stricken to lie as carrion by the way? You should not indeed, said Brandir. Doom willed it not so. And he took Turin into his house and tended him with care the first was a pretty clear-cut instance. Again, in some ways clear-cut, where we can see, at least Melian is indicating to us, yes, the will of Morgoth is at work in this one particular way, and we can see how Morwen is responding to that and everything else. Here, the doom, the fate, the shadow that Turin brings with him is not nearly so clear-cut, right? Um, Brandir is... Force clearly at several points seems to have the kind of foresighting that we see in others of the adine and the Dunadine, such as Aragorn um, at other points in Tolkien's work um, the, and this seems to be simply a foreboding, a, a, a foreseeing that Brondir has when he first looks on Turin and says this is disaster um, you know You have brought hither the last bane of our people. This is a catastrophe. And of course, the other woodmen are like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense at all. And surely, from their point of view, it doesn't make any sense. But of course, Brondir is right. Um, Now, notice, Brondir says, that was horrible. What have you done? You have brought the last bane of our people here. And they say, what do you want us to do? Right? First of all, that doesn't make any sense, because bringing him here seems like the smart thing to do, because, hey, he's the Mormon girl. Like, That's got to be a bonus, right? That's, that's, it's got to help. But secondly, this is a means and ends question. Brondir, seriously, you you, you you just wanted us to abandon him on the side of the road and leave him to die? That would have been the right thing to do, Brondir? And Brondir says, no, of course it's not. He sees that their actions, that the, the, the action that they have performed... Is going to lead to the doom of the people, but he also recognizes not only that they could not have done otherwise, they should not have done otherwise. Um, there, here again, so here there's not this question of somebody who is free to make a choice, and they're being sort of drawn in one direction by the influence of the will of Morgoth, but they have it. They have the option. You know, they you know, more when she is strongly advised by Thingol and by Melian, um, she could listen. She could, but she does But she won't, and she doesn't. Right here, we don't have that kind of a situation. Um, that is to say, you know, this this passage is kind of like my cautionary uh, uh, check on the previous passage. I certainly don't think that it is the case that we can look at all the choices that people make in these stories and break it down into those elements and say, ah, here's where Morgoth is coming in and he's either giving in or not giving into it. Sometimes the choices that people have to make, there's no good choice. Um, Whatever, when Turin, and this seems to be exactly Brondir's reaction, when Turin shows up in Breathill... Their host. I mean, it's it's over. Doom has come upon them. Uh, the land of Brethel is going to, you know, is, is good. The, the change of its name to the grave of the children of Hurin, as as Brandir renames it later on. It's um, that's already pretty much in the bank. Um, here, the choice doesn't seem. Uh, to use an improbable uh, reversal Um, yeah, Nate, I agree the woodman rescuing a man uh, does sound like Aragorn chasing uh, Merry and Pippin instead of helping Sam and Frodo it's not the smart thing, but it's morally right exactly, except what would appear to be the opposite results come from it, that is to say Aragorn feels confident that going after Merry and Pippin is the right thing to do, and although it might seem foolish from one point of view, in fact, actually from most points of view at that moment, the, 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 the moral choice, the immediate moral choice before him, the means, you know, pursuing correct means towards the end that you want to pursue rather than what you feel to be the most, the most practical, prudent, and direct means towards that end, like Saruman might do, That's obviously the right thing to do. So, okay. So if you do that, you're going to be okay. Not here. Not for Brondir, right? Brondir does the right thing. As a result, he and his people are screwed. That's the way it happens in this story. And that is what I think is so um, striking about this moment. I guess this isn't a really prominent moment, um, but it's exactly in the way in which that... um, sort of breaks that particular model that we see several times in The Lord of the Rings that I find so fascinating about how the relationship between choice and destiny, between choice and doom is treated um, uh, in uh, in this story. Now, two more quickly. Two more passages to keep in mind as we look at Turin. Here's Neonor and Glaurung. Then Nianor strove against Glaurung, for she was strong in will, but he put forth his power against her. What seek you here, he said. And constrained to answer, she said, I do but seek one Turin that dwelt here awhile, but he is dead maybe. I know not, said Glaurung. He was left here to defend the women and weaklings, but when I came he deserted them and fled. A boaster but a craven, it seems. Why seek you such a one? you lie said nianor the children of hurin at least are not craven we fear you not then Glaurung laughed for so was hurin's daughter revealed to his malice then you are fools both you and your brother said he and your boast shall be made in vain for i am Glaurung." then he drew her eyes under his and her will swooned and it seemed to her The sun sickened, and all became dim about her, and slowly a great darkness drew down on her, and in that darkness there was emptiness. She knew nothing, and heard nothing, and remembered nothing. (laughs) It's been a while since I've done the Clowrung voice. Um, Brent says, that's enough to turn anybody, Faye. Yeah. um, The point quick point that I would draw from this passage. Nino didn't do anything wrong. She didn't make a bad choice here. Um, She is going back to the meeting point to meet up with Mablung. This is what she was supposed to do, right? So she's going to go up to the... and she goes up, and she comes up over the rise, and BAM! There's the eyes of Glaurung, looking right at her, right? Notice even her first words. She is constrained to answer. She can't not respond to Glaurung. His will is too strong for her. Um, Yes, she misspeaks in revealing the fact that she is one of the children of Hurin, perhaps. Um, Though notice she does not even make the classic blunder of revealing her own name to a dragon. Um, Remember, Bilbo knows well enough not to do that, right? Um, But she doesn't do that. Right? She reveals her family. Uh, Glaurin can now figure out who she is, but she doesn't reveal her own name to the dragon. Anyway, um, and even there, she's already been constrained to answer, I am not convinced that her will is free. She strives against him. She fights him. But he put forth his power against her. And his will is too strong. Um, He drew her eyes unto his, and her will swooned. And darkness comes about her, darkness which she is powerless to resist. Um, That, I think, is a really important thing to keep in mind. There are times in this story where the people don't have a choice. Um, They are fighting a fight that they can't win. In a way, it's like being the elves in Beleriand, fighting against the armies of Morgoth. They are in a fight that they can't win on their... they cannot win without the Valar. It's not gonna happen. Um... At least not in the later versions of the story, right? Remember, in the earlier versions of the story, had Turgon marked out of, marched out of Gondolin, he and Tuor would have defeated Morgoth, but not in the later versions. It's not gonna happen. Um... Uh, uh pete says so i take it glaurong is way more powerful than smaug since the latter did not make bilbo swoon uh yeah yeah no that's clearly true uh sarah Legard, who's also here totally proved that a couple months ago so yeah absolutely um smaug is a lesser dragon than glaurong it is known um <clears throat> yeah yeah um Hmm, Alyssa, that's a wonderful comment. Um, We're not sure when we'll have time to pursue it, so I'll throw it out there. Um, uh, Alyssa says, uh, an interesting topic here is tracing the use of nothing. Uh, that she knew nothing, and heard nothing, and remembered nothing. Remember the conversation between Hurin and Morgoth at the beginning. Outside of the circles of the world, there is nothing. Um, uh, uh, Alyssa adds, here I see a connection between the dragon's effects on Mianor and Morgoth's metaphysical convictions. Yes. um, Alyssa, to that I would also add or perhaps uh, pair, because I think the two things are related here. um, Both metaphysically, uh, both sort of in this story, in the in the, in the metaphysics of this story. Um, nothing and darkness. Um, look at how people talk about darkness, especially, of course, it becomes prominent in the relationship between Nianor and Turin when they're both talking about their darknesses, right? Um, since my darkness came upon me, there was also a darkness in my, path and my past and all that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, Margot is, uh, adds um, uh, Christopher... Tolkien notes with regards to Glaurung in uh, um, in the Grey Annals in volume 11 of the History of Middle Earth. In all th- in all this, Glaurung appears as a torturer with complete power over his victim, and I do think um, that that is something that we see in this story. Um, that we have to understand certainly what happens to uh, to to, to Nienor in this way. Um, uh, good. um Anyway, um, I, I, I wish I had time to follow up, Alyssa, your nothing darkness thing. But I want to sort of throw that out there, I think, which I think is an awesome topic. Um, I would love to see somebody write something about that. Um, I think there's a lot to... to you know Another thing which I'm going to be kind of pointing to, and in fact, I'm pointing to in the... Uh, uh, in, in in my sort of funny title uh, to today's class is the foot imagery in this uh, story. Uh, we've got the feet of his doom pursuing him, and also notice how many limping people we get. Right, we get uh, the one-footed Sador, hop a foot at the beginning, and we get the 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 the, the club-footed deer at the end. Um, we get uh, you know, lots of running and chasing. We get Turin uh, chasing. Cyrus uh, in Doriath, um, uh, and again the sense of like the doom pursuing. We get lots of uh, of these kinds of uh, of these kinds of things. Anyway, there's a lot there. I think um, that uh, that we can say it's it's, uh, it's definitely a um, um uh, it's definitely a. a, a motif i think which is which is which is interesting and i think points in some interesting ways to what's going on with people's wills uh and with their choices and their relationship to doom um one last passage and then we'll get to turin here is poor mablung coming back after his disastrous trip to narchathrond choose you a new master of your hunter's lord he said to the king for i am dishonored but melian said it is not so mablung you did all that you could and none other among the king's servants would have done so much. But by ill chance you are matched against a power too great for you, too great indeed for all that now dwell in Middle-earth. I sent you to win tidings, and that you have done, said Thingol. It is no fault of yours that those whom the tidings touch nearest are now beyond hearing. Grievous indeed is this end of all Hurin's kin, but it lies not at your door. Um... I think we can see two things happening here. First, in millions conversation, it is tempting um, initially to read her first uh, comment there um, uh, as alluding to Glaurung, right? Okay, Glaurung. Look, I mean, Glaurung is 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 uh, you know is is a heavy hitter here, Ma Blung. Like you were pitted against a foe that was too great for you. That's happened before. But anyway, um, you are matched against a power too great for you. But notice, she's not talking about Glaurung. Too great indeed for all that now dwell in Middle-earth. She's not talking about Glaurung. She's talking about Morgoth, right? Um, That is, she is seeing Glaurung himself in this whole situation for what it is. Melian is looking at the bigger picture here, right? Um, She sees people, the people involved, like Turin and Morwen, refer to Morgoth and the Malice of Morgoth. But in the moment, they often seem to forget about it. Um, That is to say, uh, you know, on the ground, it's not obvious to them. It's not a clear factor in their lives, which is, again, why I found that conversation with Thingo and Melian and Morwin at the beginning so interesting, because in that moment it's made explicit to her, and she explicitly addresses it, and explicitly seems to either misunderstand it or brush it aside in a way which shows that she's not really thinking about it. Um, Melian? Melian is seeing the big picture here, right? Uh, as Neil says, Glaurung is just a, a tool, he's an instrument. Um, He is the instrument of Morgoth's will here. Um, And, uh, um, yeah, Scott has an interesting observation. He says that Glaurung doesn't seem quite as independent an agent uh, in this version of the story than in the Silmarillion, I agree. There are several references which do seem to tie his will more explicitly to Morgoth's will um, and make him less... There's a... a In the Silmarillion account of it, there's almost a sense in which Glaurung setting himself up as a dragon king, for instance, can almost be seen as him sort of setting up on his own, not in rivalry of Morgoth exactly, but basically Morgoth kind of letting him go and him doing his own thing, right, independent of the will of Morgoth, still, you know, pursuing it. But it's much clearer here that even in doing that, he is following the will of Morgoth. Um, Anyway, so here is... Melian saying, look, Mablung, what this boiled down to was you trying to struggle against the devices of Morgoth, and nobody in Middle-earth is going to win that battle. Nobody. And that, of course, counts Morwin and Turin and everybody else. Look at Thingol's response, right? I sent you to do a job and you did it. Don't say you failed, right? Just because everything was a complete fiasco. You didn't fail, right? But anyway, apart from his uh, sort of weak attempt uh, to cheer Mabung up, um, he turns... Melian is looking at the big picture. Thingol says, uh, Grievous indeed, but uh, is, is this end of all Hurin's kin, but it lies not at your door. At whose door does it lie? It co- does it lie? It could be uh, when we could interpret him as basically seconding what Millian said uh, and saying that it's, it lies at Morgoth's door, and that's certainly true, but I think there's also, um, uh, it is no fault of yours that those whom the tidings touch nearest now are beyond hearing, uh, but it's kind of their fault that they are now beyond hearing, isn't it? Um, that is, that he is sort of pointing to, look, you know, you... Uh, uh you couldn't uh you couldn't really do anything about that. They made their own choices. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because Scott is saying let's not bicker and argue argue about who killed who. Um Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um so but, and I don't think there, you know, uh Brent was suggesting that, you know, he says, I wonder if Thingle understands half the thing million the things Million says. Um yeah, yeah. But um but I think we don't necessarily, I think, have to see this as Thingol kind of missing the point. He does that sometimes. But, um, but here I think we see both of them emphasizing a different aspect, right? Um, she points to the big picture. This is the will of Morgoth being played out against this family that he has cursed. Thingol says. Um, uh, Thingol says they chose their path. And that's true too, you know. Uh, that's th- that um, that is. Uh, um, I think both of those things um, are clearly in operation here. Um, but again, well, the last thing I would emphasize before we leave this behind and go back to Turin is Melian's point. No, too great indeed for all that now dwell in Middle Earth. If Nienor's will could not possibly stand up to Glaurung's will, he is just too strong for her, no matter the fact that she is trying to fight him and that she is not in that moment doing anything wrong. Nevertheless, uh, she's overwhelmed. Turin also, in the end, cannot defeat Morgoth. Morgoth has cursed him, and Morgoth's curse is gonna happen. But, as Thingol points out, there are still choices to be made. Anyway, um, let's go back and look at Turin. Going back a ways, here is Turin's choice to flee from Doriath, originally. Um, So he's just been found over the corpse of Cyrus here, Mablong has come up, right? If the king were just, he would judge me guiltless. But was not this one of his counselors? Why should a king why should a just king choose a heart of malice for his friend i abjure his law and his judgment your words are unwise said mablung though in his heart he felt pity for turin you shall not turn runagate i bid you return with me as a friend and there are other witnesses when the king learns the truth you may hope for his pardon but turin was weary of the elven halls and he feared lest he be held captive and he said to mablung i refuse your bidding I will not seek King Thingol's pardon for nothing, and I will go now where his doom cannot find me. You have but two choices, to let me go free or to slay me, if that would fit your law, for you are too few to take me alive. They saw in his eyes that this was true, and they let him pass, and Mablong said, One death is enough. I did not will it, but I do not mourn it, said Turin. May Mandos judge him justly, and if ever he returns to the lands of the living, may he prove wiser. Farewell fare free, said Mablung, for that is your wish. But well I do not hope for, if you go in this way. A shadow is on your heart. When we meet again, may it be no darker." Which is pretty darn awful to think about when you think forward to the next time that Mablung will, in fact, meet Turin, which is immediately after the slaying of Brondir and the suicide of Nienor. Um... By then, indeed, the shadow will have grown darker. That is when Turin will say, Now comes the night. Uh, pretty awful. Um, now, what do we see going on here? As we think about Turin's choices, one of the things that I, I, I want to say at the beginning here is I think it's important for us to resist the temptation. I find it very tempting and I have been tempted, you know, at various points and classes I've taught and conversations I've had about Turin, um, I have uh, often experienced and not always resisted the temptation to be dismissive of Turin. It's pretty easy to do. It's pretty easy to um, just sort of write Turin off as a reckless, willful fool um, and, uh, and just sort of be dismissive and harsh with him. Um, this actually is another thing that I really like about this longer version of the story, compared with the Silmarillion version. Many of his choices were given a lot more detail about. We hear more from him in the moment of his choosing, and this is one example. Um, In the Silmarillion account, when Cyrus dies, and Mablung comes across him and says, "Uh, uh, this looks bad, why don't you come back for judgment? Um, uh, Turin doesn't give any real rationale. I mean, it just sort of sounds he's like, "No, whatever. I refuse. I'm out of here. I'm not going to go to trial. Uh, you can't. You, you're not going. I'm not. I'm not going to come quietly. You can't haul me in." Um, Turin has points. I'm not saying this is a good choice, but Turin has points. Um, he knows himself to be the wronged party, uh, which is why he gives himself that name here, right? <laughs> or soon after this, right? Um, but notice he puts some doubt on the judgment of Thingol. Wait, what? Somebody doubting the judgment of Thingol? Who would do that? But anyway, um, Turin is doing that here because you know, was this not one of his counselors? Why should a just king choose a heart of malice for his friend? Right? If this guy was Thingol's idea of a trustworthy counselor, you know, it's not just the question of this leads me to question Thingol's judgment, which he's also saying, but of course also the question of am i going to get am I really going to get a fair trial here um, you know, because he realizes that this looks bad, and he doesn't want to submit to trial for fear that there's going to be a miscarriage of justice and that he's just going to be and that he's going to be held captive, as he says um. Sharon Hoff points out, um, Turin's reasons are similar to his mother's. He doesn't want to be trapped uh, and doesn't want to hang out endlessly with the elves. Yes, Sharon, one of the really telling moments in this passage is, but Turin was weary of the elven halls, right? Um, There's also an element which is much less respectable of just him being kind of sick of this. Um, Yeah, now Roy points out that I'm being too light on Turin, that to chase somebody with a sword for sport and revenge is not a guiltless act. Yes, that's true. Turin got a little carried away, no question. Um, now notice when Thingol actually does sit in judgment, he judges he as he almost agrees with Turing's rationale. I, I would I would come pretty close to say I, I rather I would say that Thingol comes pretty close to ratifying that initial reaction that Turin has in the first paragraph of this passage here. When Thingol says Not only do I deem him guiltless of the murder of Cyrus, I'm not just going to pardon him, I'm going to pursue him with my pardon because the person who did this was a counselor of mine, right? He does see himself as in some way culpable because Cyrus, whom he trusted and whom he respected and who was, at least in some loose sense, a kind of representative of Thingol and his court, did this to him, right? So Thingol... Thingol's response in the end, his, his final doom, his final judgment, is uh, not only am I going to say Turin is pardoned, but because I feel culpable for what happened in some way, um, I'm going to aggressively pardon him. I'm going to pursue him with my pardon. That, I think, is a big deal. So, of course, in the end, th- uh, Turin's suspicion of Thingol's judgment is unfounded. Thingol, in fact, does Doom. Exactly what he, uh, um, exactly what he suspects he's not going to do. But um, of course, none of you will have uh, been missing the significance of the word doom here being used in one of its other senses. Um, certainly, that phrase, "I will go now where his doom cannot find me," is a very resonant clause in this story, right? Um, Yes, of course, he's talking about Thingol and Thingol's legal judgment of his case in this instance, but of course I will go now where his doom cannot find me is a sentence which applies to Turin, which Turin could say in other contexts and in other ways at several points in this story. Um, The fact that Turin chooses to run from his doom um, is... Uh, is is obviously a theme in this story, um, and that I think is one of the things that sort of provides us with a with a pretty clear cue here. Turin has made a bad choice. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um... Yeah, Kate's interested in the reference to the possible reincarnation of Cyrus. Yeah, that is an interesting uh addition there. Um Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, good. Um Yes, running from fate will always help it arrive sooner, as Bree says. Um, as Bree Moss says, yeah, I, I I that does seem to happen. Uh, quite a bit, in this story. Um, Yeah, Roy is pointing out that doom immediately follows uh, the word uh, choice here. Yeah, I will go now where his doom cannot find me. You have but two choices. Um, Yes, yes. Um, And of course, doom means a choice, a judgment, made by a person not sort of superimposed on him from above. Though, in Turin's position, the doom of Thingol is imposed upon him from above. And he's not going to submit to it. I am not going to submit to anyone else's doom. He basically passes judgment on himself. If the king were just, he would judge me guiltless. I I decree myself guiltless. I don't even need to stand trial, right? Because I've already been found guiltless by me, right? So I am not going to submit to the doom of somebody else. In the end, that's really what Turin's problem is here, right? Is that he's not going to submit to anybody else's doom. Um, he is going to to decree his own doom. He is going to be the master of his own doom, the master of his own fate, exactly. As Scott was just pointing out. Um, exactly. He's going to be Turambar. Um, that is certainly a trend that we see uh, at work here in this sort of limited way early on in the story. And notice also the consequence of this. He changes his name, one of the first times. It won't be the last. Um, Notice how in the extended edition here, uh, we also get about four or five more names for Turin, (laughs) just in case he thought the Silmarillion version didn't have enough names. uh, He gets a bunch more names here. But anyway, um, he's going to name himself Nathan the Wrong. Which is ironic because he's not been wronged. In fact, he's been pardoned. Um, he is only wronged in his own head. Um, but um, anyway, <laughs> Dave, Dave Kailis, uh, uh regretting that he left those out of the Mithmoot trivia round. That was one of the... the uh, we, we had a pub trivia at Mythmoot, and one of the, uh, the, the, the questions for our trivia teams uh, was to list as many of the names of Turin as they could. Um, yeah, now, Neil, of course you're right. He doesn't know that he's been pardoned at this, at the point at which he names himself Naeth in the wrong, but he doesn't bother to find out, does he? <laughs> you know, he makes the assumption. I decree myself guiltless, I assume they're not going to, and so I'm going to carry on believing that wrong has been done to me, and I'm going to go on bad-mouthing the elves uh, to the men that I meet, right? And to encourage them to bad the elves, and we learn that he does this. <clears throat> um, yeah, that's not... Um, that, is, uh, that is... That is really not okay. Um, now... Let's go to his next choice. his choice not to return once he has been told that he has in fact not been wronged at all. I look for more joy at my tidings. Beleg said, surely you will return now to Doriath? what a what a wonderful, delightful, simple question that Beleg asks, right um, really, what possible objection Turin could you have to coming back? you've not you're not wronged, you're not misunderstood. Uh, uh, You've been completely exonerated and in fact shown not only justice but grace by the fact that I've come chasing after you to tell you that nothing is being held against you, everything is fine, nobody thinks the worst of you, Um, you're not an outcast, surely you'll come back, right? And he begged Turin to do this in all ways that he could, but the more he urged it, the more Turin hung back. Nonetheless, he questioned Beleg closely concerning the judgment of Thingol. Then Beleg told him all that he knew, and at the last Turin said, Then Mablung proved my friend, as he once seemed. The friend of truth, rather, said Beleg, and that was best in the end. But why, Turin, did you not speak of, to him of Cyrus's Saros, of assault upon you? All otherwise things might have gone. "'And,' he said, looking at the men sprawled near the mouth of the cave, "'you might have held your helm still high and not fallen to this.' "'That may be, if fall you call it,' said Turin, "'that may be. But so it went, and words and words stuck in my throat. "'There was reproof in his eyes, without question asked of me, "'for a deed I had not done. "'My man's heart was proud, as the elf-king said, "'and so it still is, Beleg Cuthalion. Yet will I? Yet will it not suffer me to go back to Menegroth and bear looks of pity and pardon as for a wayward boy amended? I shall. I should give pardon, not receive it. And I am a boy no longer, but a man according to my kind, and a hard man by my fate. Then Beleg was troubled. What will you do then? He asked. Fare free, said Turin. That wish Mablung gave me at our parting. The grace of Thingol will not stretch to receive these companions of my fall, I think, but I will not part with them now, if they do not wish to part with me. Okay. Why doesn't Turin return to Doriath? Now, as with any of these choices, it's complicated, and there's more than one factor involved here, right? Pride, yes. Brent and April both are quick to say that. Absolutely, I agree. Pride, yes. But... More more specifics here. Um, Kate makes a wonderful point. Uh, Kate Neville says, it's, all, it's interesting that Turin wishes most to be free and his own master, where his father is bound. Yes, Hurin is happy to serve the elven kings. Um, and Turin talked that way, remember in his conversations with Sador, I will go and be a warrior under an elf king like my father. Uh, turns out he doesn't like that so much, right? Um, He will not serve only command. That's uncomfortable. Um, Do you recognize I just accidentally quoted the Lord of the Rings? Do you remember where it was? He will not serve only command. Of whom was that said? Do you remember Yes. Saruman. Saruman. Um, Gandalf says that of Saruman. Um, uh, he will not serve. Only command. Um, it's uncomfortable. Um, Jeff says, again back to the question, why does he not go? Um his refusal to be pitied. Jeff, I find that a very conspicuous one, given how important, again, an emphasis almost entirely new in this extended version, compared with what we got in the Silmarillion version, um, Turin's pity, and the significance of that element in Turin's character, that his pity, um, the pity that he showed to Sador, um, which which was uh, such a, a, a prominent theme, understood by, uh, by Morwin, uh, at least to some extent. Um, anyway, um, his pity, which Findula says is you know one of the only ways to kind of access Turin, one of the things that could save him, he refuses in others. He refuses to be the object of pity, even though he is quick to give pity himself. Um, and that I think is a really interesting, a very important element. In Turin's story. Um, again, thinking uh, Brent and April, when I was saying, you know, I want more besides just his pride, that's, a, that's an interesting illustration of it, right? We sort of see the direction in which his pride is going. Um, uh, showing pity to people is tremendously important. Being willing to receive pity also really important. Neil says he doesn't want to abandon his new friends, you know, with quotation marks around friends. Yes, and as Niels adds, he also wants to stay a leader. This is a complicated desire of his part, right? Um, uh, the grace of Thingol will not stretch to receive these companions of my fall, I think. Um, Beleg's disdain for Turin's company. Not that he doesn't have reason for it. Um, I, they're a little bit scummy, but um, this is... Uh, also, I think, an instance of pity on Turin's part. But it is mingled, as, as Neil pointed out in his observation, with desire for mastery as well. He wants to be a lord. Um, but as Kay points out, he also has some desire to be with his own kind. He was wearied of the, elv- of, of, of the elven halls, right? It's not just, I want to be master, I, I, I want to be the boss, I want to be in charge, I don't want to be serving somebody else that's involved, definitely a factor, but also I want to be with my own people. I want to help my own people. Again, more emphasis placed in the longer version on the fact that many of those outlaws that he was hanging out with were formerly of Dorloman, were formerly his people, of whom he was the rightful lord and whom he wants to raise uh, above where they are. And in fact, he succeeds in raising them above where they are for, for a time. Right? He takes this band of Vicious uh, and immoral outlaws uh, preying upon the the the, the other people uh, who live there, and instead turns them into, you know, a force against Morgoth. Um, you know that he wants to elevate them. He wants to uh, to do something to see them make something greater of them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um Yeah, good. Um Yes, I agree with Brianna says uh Brianna Melvin adds Turin is also irked when Beleg belittles the outlaws, probably has something to do with them being men like him, and Turin also feeling insulted by the comment because beleg can see uh, uh can see from a mannish perspective yeah um there is a a moment there um you might have held your helm still high and not fallen to this right um some of Turin's reaction against that, I think is basically him sticking up for his race against a statement, which, again, Bilek has every reason to think ill of those guys, right? You know, they captured him and kept him and tortured him very recently, right? You know, he's every reason not to think that they're very nice people. Um, but Turin takes it, and I'm not sure he's wrong to take it, as a statement about where Turin belongs, Right, you belong with us. You belong among the elves. You belong as a captain among Thingol's armies, um, and Turin says, "No, I belong with my people. Um, I belong with the people of Loman. I belong out here trying to help my people who are in exile and who have themselves uh, suffered a hard fate." And I too, Alyssa, am fascinated by the sort of the ironic significance of that. Him sort of boasting almost about his hard fate. I think it's a great point that Alyssa makes. But anyway, they've suffered a hard fate too, right? Um, his place is to help to lift them up, not to shut himself away from them. Um, one thing I find when I look more closely at Turin's choices, especially in the in this longer version, is I feel, I feel like you can always see both sides of it, even when the choice that he makes seems clearly wrong, um, misguided, and we can see a bunch of negative things leading into this. Um, he his choices are more justifiable than, uh, I would than I think the Silmarillion alone would have left me to, uh, um, to, to, to conclude. And yeah, Neil says there are more layers to Turin in, in the Unfinished Tales version. I agree with that. Um, Here's Turin looking at the big picture. This is in Nargothrond. This is in the appendix section, um, uh, getting some snatches of uh, the expanded Nargothrond story, which is never, <coughs> which Tolkien didn't write out in full here. Um, but here's Turin's comment on the overall strategic situation involving Nargothrond uh, and uh, him being impatient with just waiting on the Valar to intercede for them. The Valar, said Turin. They have forsaken you, and they hold men in scorn. What use to look westward across the endless sea? There is but one Vala with whom we have to do, and that is Morgoth. And if in the end we cannot overcome him, at the least we can hurt him and hinder him. For victory is victory, however small, nor is its worth only in what follows from it, but it is expedient also. Let me stop for a second. For victory is victory, however small, nor is its worth only in what follows from it. One comment that Turin makes here is, overall strategy be damned, right? We're not trying to win here. Or rather, there's no point in trying to win here. And what's more, what he's saying here is, in the end, victory is not the most important thing. Victory is victory, however small, nor is its worth only in what follows from it. If we fight and we stand up against Morgoth and we die, who cares? We have still done what needed to be done. Um, uh, Timothy, I agree with you. Timothy says that uh, his reading um, this time uh, Made him admire Turin. he is a northernness hero. he refuses to buckle to fate um, uh, and when it becomes uh, intolerable like Oedipus, he takes his punishment. Um, yeah, yeah he that idea of look, ultimate victory I'm not interested in ultimate victory, or rather ultimate victory is beyond my pay grade, right? All I know is that we have a fight to fight right in front of us now, right? And maybe we are all doomed. Maybe we are going to lose eventually. But what, you know, victory is victory, however small. Nor is its worth only in what follows from it. You can't just think of it in terms of, what are we going to gain from this victory? No, we have to fight, right? Um, Notice also, from the beginning here, one of the things that we're getting in in his reference to the Valar here is... This is the human point of view. It's easy for the elves to take the long view, right? Um he says, Look, you know, the Valar the Valar to me irrelevant, he says. Right? The only Valar who is relevant is Morgoth. Uh, he is here. And if we can't overcome him, at the least we have to hurt or hinder him. It is our job to oppose him, you know, everything else is out of our hands. Um this is a very limited point of view. You might say, well, gosh, Turin is not really seeing the big picture. And he would say, no, no, I'm human. I don't have the big picture. You want to sit around? You, you, you think you can outwait Morgoth? You think you can hang out? Maybe in a thousand years things will get better? Maybe. I can't see that. I don't see that. Um, that's... Um, and I, I, I think it's it's yeah it's a very mannish perspective uh, as Ethan and Margot are saying and I think that there is there is something there is something to that and again it does sound very very Norse very Germanic. Case um, as Eowyn would have agreed with him. Yeah yeah um, that actually is a fascinating parallel. Uh, I don't know if you noticed. I only noticed after I'd said it. Um, talking about being pitted against a foe too great for him. Um, I was accidentally quoting, um, uh, you know, thinking of Gandalf talking about Eowyn, uh, and the Witch-King. Um, doing a comparison, looking at the parallels between Turin and Eowyn, actually, I think are, are fascinating. Um, but, um, yeah kA when also scorned pity yeah very well remembered exactly I, there's that works actually really well and looking comparing and contrasting because of course one uh, has a happy ending and the other a less happy ending um, is uh, is interesting um, to sort of look at uh, look at how their fates play themselves out um, uh, yeah yeah anyway let me carry on here. But it is expedient also, for if you do nothing to halt him, all Beleriand will fall beneath his shadow before many years have passed. And then one by one he will smoke you out of your earths. And what then? A pitiable remnant will fly south and west to cower on the shores of the sea, caught between Morgoth and Ossay. Better then to win a time of glory, though it be short-lived, for the end will be no worse. You speak of secrecy, and say that therein lies the only hope. But could you ambush and waylay every scout and spy of Morgoth to the last and least, so that none come ever back with tidings to Angband? Yet from that he would learn that you lived, and guess where? And this also I say, though mortal men have little life beside the span of elves, they would rather spend it in battle than fly or submit. The defiance of Thalion is a great deed, and though Morgoth slay the doer, he cannot make the deed not to have been. There's another... Uh... Northern sentiment, though Morgoth may slay the doer he cannot make the deed not to have been. Even the lords of the West will honor it, and it is not written and is it not written into the story of Arda, which neither Morgoth nor Manway can unwrite Again. It's easy, especially in the Silmarillion, to be dismissive of Turin, and especially Turin and Nargothrond, um the the uh, you know when When Glaurung makes his accusations against Turin, you know, when he does his little sum-up of Turin's life, right? Captain Foolhardy is one of the things that he calls him. Um, In the Silmarillion, when Glaurung does his list describing Turin, Turin, it's really easy to sit there and be like, yeah, well, yeah, it's got a point. Yeah, that's kind of true, too. (laughs) You know, because the accusations of Glaurung seem justified. They're still justified, to some extent, um the accusations that he makes at the end of his life, but not so simply so. Turin is not simply cocky. He's not simply saying, Forget secrecy. We don't need secrecy, right? Let's let's defy Morgoth openly. You know, Nargothron versus Angben. Bring it, Morgoth, let's do this. That that's not his whole attitude. What he explains here, even and I say this cautiously, even his criticism of the Valar is not without merit, I think. Certainly from his point of view. If the Valar are up to something bigger and long-term, it is A, hidden from him, and B, more importantly to him, irrelevant to him. We men are being born, suffering, and dying, and, you know, if the Valar are delaying... It's not doing us a lick of good. Maybe our descendants, some of our descendants, a few of, a few of our descendants will eventually get rescued by the Valar. But you know what? In the meantime, all of my people are suffering and dying. So the question is, how are we going to give our lives? How are we going to spend our lives? Um, are we going to make our deaths mean something or not? So this whole, we're going to sit around and hope the Valar do something someday, doesn't work for humans, says Turin. And again, there's something to that not saying that Turin's choices in Nargothrond are excellent and unassailable, but there is much more to them. There's much more to be said in defense of them, I think, um, when we hear them uh, in full here. Um, and that, I think, is really uh, is, is, is a really fascinating element of this version of the story. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Kate Neville says, we really learn more about the relationship between men and elves from Turin than from either Tuor or even Beren. It's the only time we really get to see how ordinary men endured during the Wars of the Silmarils, in Dorloman and in and in the Wild. Um, yeah, I agree, Kate. and again, this is one of the reasons I think, you know, going back to the conversation we had at the beginning of last time, what's the significance of this story? Why is this one of the great stories? Um, you know, why does this story have such a prominent place? And, you know, one of the things that I come back to from that is this is the mannish story. This story encapsulates the human condition as differentiated from the elvish condition. It, it captures the human condition um, in general, in some ways, and in the First Age, in the battle against Morgoth in particular, in ways that no other story captures. Um, it is, in a sense, a counterbalance to a lot of the rest of the Legends of the First Age, which are focused on Elves and the Elvish the whole sort of Elvish worldview and point of view. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, In fairness, Gwyndor's response. You speak of high things, Gwyndor answered, and plain it is that you have lived among the Eldar. But a darkness is on you, if you set Morgoth and Menway together or speak of the Valar as the foes of elves or men? For the Valar scorn nothing, and least of all the children of Iluvatar. Nor do you know all the hopes of the Eldar. It is a prophecy among us, that one day a messenger from Middle-earth will come through the shadows to Valinor, and Manwe will hear, and Mandos relent. For that time shall we not attempt to preserve the seed of the Noldor, and of the Edain also? And Cirdan dwells now in the south, and there is building of ships. But what know you of ships, or the sea? You think of yourself and of your own glory, and bid us each to do likewise. But we must think of others besides ourselves. For not all can fight and fall, and those, w- and those we must keep from war and ruin while we can. A barbed shaft to Turin, uh, doubtless, thinking of his own people uh, and his mother and sister. But Gwindor says, big picture right, there's stuff that you don't understand. And Gwindor is right. I have no doubt that Gwyndor is right to say this. Valar score nothing, and least of all the children of Iluvatar. But, Turin's feeling, his sense, uh, his theory, if you want to say that, that the Valar scorn humans, um, that is um, that is uh, 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 understandable at least. It's easy to see how they would think that. Um, remember Hurin's conversation about this earlier on. Hurin's faith. right? Hurin has staunch faith in the Eldar, in the Valar, in the Eldar and what the Eldar have taught. right? Um, Morgoth mocks him for this. Turin doesn't share it because his experience has been very different. Yes, uh, both Elisa and and Kate, uh, quickly, um, pointing out the echo here of Gandalf's words. There are other men in other lives and times still to be. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Um, there is, this is definitely reminiscent of Gandalf's, um, words to Denethor against despair. Um, anyway, um... Yes, and so again, now notice also, this is another element that we don't get, I don't think we get a whiff of, do we? I mean, am am I missing any whiffs of this in the Silmarillion? This prophecy that he talks about? The idea that Earendo is foreseen in some sense, that they are anticipating, not just hoping, not just, you know, praying, but actually anticipating that the Valar will relent and that, you know, there's going to be a messenger and that that, that that's going to go down. This is a... uh, this is a this is a new this is a new thing um, Sarah says, aeonwe does call him you know the the looked for or well, the looked for that cometh in unawares um, yes there is a sense in the silmarillion account that the valar knew he would eventually come what I don't see is any sense that the people in Middle-earth have that. That is that it enters into the strategy of the elves. Um, notice in this version of Gwyndor's argument also is more sound, I think, than the pure elvish isolationist argument that we get here. You know, on the one hand, it makes sense, okay, after the, the near ninth, we have tried open war against Morgoth. That failed, and now we certainly do not have the capacity to, if we failed before, we're always going to fail, because now we're way weaker than we were before, so open arms is hopeless, let's hide. It's not that that's not a reasonable thing. But, in the Silmarillion, there doesn't seem to be any question, a- any answer, to the question, so guys, what's your long-term plan here? I mean, do you really think you can hide forever? Um, Gwyndor has an answer, right? We don't have to hide forever. We just have to hide for long enough until the prophecy comes true. That, I think, uh, is... Uh, is um, an element that uh, it really changes the situation here um, but uh, anyway um, let's do at least a couple more Turin decisions here's Turin indoor Loman speaking with Iron, his kinswoman. When did she flee and whither "'A year and three months gone,' said Iron, "'Master Broda and the others of the incomers of the east hereabout oppressed her sorely. "'Long ago she was bidden to the hidden kingdom, and she went forth at last. "'For the lands between were then free of evil for a while "'because of the prowess of the black sword of the south country,' it is said. "'But that now is ended. "'She looked to find her son there awaiting her. "'But if you are he, then I fear that all has gone awry.' "'Then Turin laughed bitterly. A wry? a wry? he cried. Yes, ever a wry. as crooked as Morgoth. And suddenly a black wrath shook him, for his eyes were opened, and the spell of Glaurung loosed its last threads, and he knew the lies with which he had been cheated. Have I been cozened, that I might come here and die dishonored, who might at least have ended valiantly before the doors of Nargothrond? And out of the night about the hall it seemed to him that he heard the cries of Finduilas not first will i die here he cried and he seized broda and with the strength of his great anguish and wrath he lifted him on high and shook him as if he were a dog More one of the thrall folk did you say you son of dastards thief slave of slaves thereupon he flung broda head foremost across his own table full in the face of an easterling that rose to assail turin and then later on Iron's comment to him now go swiftly But go first to Marwen and comfort her, or I will hold all the rack you have wrought here hard to forgive. For ill though my life was, you have brought me to death with your violence. The incomers will avenge this night on all that were here. Rash are your deeds, son of Hurin, as if you were still but the child that I knew. Okay. Um, I mostly, of course, wanted to look at his... uh, um, uh, at his... his... Oh, his reaction to his eyes being opened there. Um, but th- I wanted to make sure we got Iron's words there, because I think they're really important as context for what is coming. Now, tell me what you see. Tell me what you notice. In his reaction there in that, in that second long paragraph, What, um, what strikes you as really important? <laughs> uh, Kay says she's going to start. Uh, uh, she's going to start shouting "dastards" at the people who cut her off in traffic. Now, I think Kay. I think that's a that's a good move. Um, Jeff, Black Wrath. I agree. I, I, that really struck me too. i um, thinking of, um, on the one hand, he's re- he is at the very moment in which he sees the way he has been deceived. Right, his eyes are opened um he's now in the light again, and his reaction to that is blackness, right this black wrath, which seems really not uh not a good idea um uh, yeah yeah um good um Kay points out one of the interesting things that he's missed he, the fact that he missed out on the glorious death, that he, he, he emphasizes his own dishonor. Have I been cousined that I might come here and die dishonored? Um, again, contrast with what Iron points out to him uh, you've, we're basically all screwed now, right? You have brought death to me and to all of us that were here. Um, that's not what he's thinking in that moment. He's thinking about himself, and particularly, Kay, as you say, his own dishonor. Um, yes. Um, ooh, very good, Roy. Roy reminds us of the passage we were looking at last time. Melian's words to Turin, saying, Fear both the heat and the cold of your heart. We see both the heat and the cold of his heart uh, at play here. Certainly the heat of his heart in his black wrath, but I think, in a sense, the cold as well, um... That he his coldness to um, again. There's this irony. He has come to dorloman because he f- has been deceived, and he feels bad that he left Nienor and Morwin so long in misery and in want, as 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 Glaurung convinces him that they are uh, residing in rags. Though of course they're in Doriath, but. Um, so it's because he feels guilty for not taking care of his people that he's come back to Dor But in doing so, he has done more harm to his people, right? Um, so you know, it's, he's chiding himself for the coldness of his heart towards Neonor and Morwin, and but in fact, he, his heart is certainly, uh, one could argue, being a bit cold towards the rest of everybody. At least he's being very thoughtless of them and uncaring. Um. Yes, Don is pointing out how Iron echoes Gwindor there, and the concern for defending people and not just dying the glorious death. Um. Yes, good. Um. Yeah, Sharon uh, Powell asks, "Why does Túrin think he is going to die here dishonored?" Um, Is it something that Glaurong said to him? Um, He's dishonored. My understanding of that, Sharon, is not that necessarily the death that he dies here is going to be a dishonorable death. Um, I mean he could die valiantly here as well as at the gates of Nargothrond. In fact, you could make an argument that his death here could be quite glorious, right? He's going to go back to the hall of his people. He's going to reclaim Dorloman by himself. And that's not going to work out. And he's going to die, but doggone it, he's going to die reclaiming his land, right? Um, You know, you can make that argument. It's not totally different from his Nargothrond argument, right? Um, But, uh... I don't, so I don't think that that's what he means. That if he is killed in Brada's Hall, that it will be a dishonorable death. Rather, he is going to die, and before he dies, he will have been—he like, has been dishonored already, and now he's going to die having been dishonored. He is dishonored by not having rescued Finduilas, By his—and that, that is where Sharon Glaurung's deception comes into it. Um, because Glaurung deceived him into not... Perce- you know, he, he had the choice. Do I pursue Fenduelas and try to rescue her, or do, I, um, or do I go back and try to rescue Morwin and Nianor? And he chooses Morwin and Nianor, and in doing so, he is, he is doing so under the compulsion. To what extent is he compelled? Under certainly at least the influence of Glaurung's deception. Glaurung has placed it in his heart to go back to Dorloman instead of pursuing Finduilas. And it's pretty clear if Finduilas made it all the way up to where she finally dies before she's killed, he had it, an opportunity to rescue her. Um, uh, he, he's got a, a good bit further uh, to go with and with the uh, with the captors having less of a head start uh, than Beleg did uh, to pursue and chase down the orcs that had captured him. Um, but um, anyway so i so i th- i th- that's my suspicion as to what he means by that that he has been dishonored um by having basically by his choice allowed Finduilas and all the other captives of Nargothrond to be killed um and he doesn't want to die sort of in that state, i guess um, yeah, yeah, um. Yeah, Alden says uh in Morgoth cursing Hurin, uh he's cursing all of Hurin's people. Yeah, to some extent, Alden, it does sort of seem like that. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, good. Um yeah, uh Margot again referring to the passage in the Grey Annals, so, you know, at that point Christopher is saying is opining that Turin had no choice, that his will was under Glaurung's when Finduilas was taken away. Um, though there, notice Margot is talking about the moment when he's transfixed, and they haul Finduilus out and he doesn't do anything right then, in that moment. He was physically incapable of movement. Um, it's less obvious that he was utterly under the power of Glaurung. When he is traveling to Dorloman and in Dorloman, um, but he but he he testifies to having been deceived, uh, and he feels like he's now seeing uh, for the first time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so now he's got to make a choice. What does he do? What does he do now? Iron has just said. Go first to Morwen and comfort her, or I will hold all the rack you have wrought here hard to forgive. If the outcome of the catastrophe you have brought upon us is at least bringing you back together with Morwen so that Morwen might be comforted and protected. If I can die knowing that that has happened, I'm not going to be happy, but it's going to be okay. If you fail to do that, I'm going to find it pretty hard to forgive you for what you've done here right that's the only thing that could, that's the only good that could come out of this is that you get back together with Morwen and, and you make that right okay turin what are you going to do now turin went down towards Syrian and he was torn in mind for it seemed to him that whereas he had he he ha- coming again for it seemed to him that whereas before he had two bitter choices that is finduilas or morwen and Neonor, now there were three and his oppressed people called to him, upon whom he had brought only increase of woe. This comfort only he had, that beyond doubt Morwen and Nianor had come long since to Doriath, and only by the prowess of the black sword of Nargothrond had their road been made safe. And he said in his thought, Who else, Where else better might I have bestowed them had I indeed come sooner? If the girdle of Melian be broken, then all is ended. Nay, it is better as things be. For by my wrath and rash deeds, I cast a shadow wherever I dwell. Let Melian keep them, and I will leave them in peace, unshadowed, for a while. So, what's his choice? (laughs) Wrath and rash deeds again, yes, exactly, exactly. Um... Kay says, maybe the shadow that follows Turin after this point is Iron's ghost haunting him for totally blowing in here. Uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, Yana says, Turin once again chooses not to accept counsel even when given to him by a human this time. Um, yes. Yes. Turin is not good at following advice. He's not good at taking other people's counsel. That is certainly true. Notice his rationale here. Okay, now he's got three choices. What are his three choices? His three choices are the same two as before, continue to go after Morwen and Neonor, now that he knows where they really are. Second, to go after Finduilas, late though it may seem, and indeed it is late. Or the third, stay and try to help his people in Dorloman. Right? Um, His oppressed people called to him. That is presumably not literally. They seem quite glad to be shut of him when he leaves. But, um, but, but but rather, the suffering... Again, pity. He is moved by pity for his people. right? And we know that he's always had pity for his people. He's always thinking of Dor Loman. He was thinking of Dor Loman when he was trying to raise up the the outlaws. right? He wanted to go back to Dor and reconquer it. Um, yeah, Roy points out the irony is he only listens to Glaurung. Glaurung is the only person whose advice he takes. Um, yes. Yes. Um, Brent says this is not compu- this is completely not the prideful Turin, but one lacking confidence. But then again, he's still focused on self. Yes, Brent. He's not thinking highly of himself in this moment. But his the basis of his choice is still, in a sense, self-aggrandizing. Right? Um, he's not thinking ill of himself instead of well of himself, and yet he's still focused. On himself, not what Iren just told him to do. Um, His pursuit of Finduilas now is hopeless. There is no chance, no realistic chance, that she is left alive. He had a chance before, he has no chance now. Uh, And what we see when he does go after Finduilas, he finds her grave, right? Um, But it's in self-pity, There's at least a strong element of self-pity in his seeking after Findulis and her grave at this point. Um, He's not seeking to do good for others, really, right? He's seeking sort of closure for himself about the Findulis question. I mean, maybe there's a really, really outside shot that she's still alive, but uh, that really seems not sound, right? So he's got the pity for his people, the finding out what happened to Fenduelas which seems to be there's a lot of self-pity there and again sort of I'm going to go beat myself up about the bad choice I made or he's going to go and seek his family's going to seek Morrowind and Nienor and at least make things right by them as Iron very strongly suggested he might want to do. Because things have gone awry. Notice his response. Awry? Awry? Oh, yeah. Things have gone more awry than you have any idea of. Well, my friend Turin, things are going to go a lot more awry than you have any idea of if you don't do that, right? You could stop the awryness here (laughs) if you just actually went and, you know, touched base, check in with Morwin, and move on. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um yeah um yeah good. Uh, Brian is pointing back to his naming himself the wronged. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah uh, again i i don't want I don't want to go too far in saying that Turin is just being self-pitying and seeking after findulas, but at the very least, even in the best possible construction of it. He is choosing a super uh, super long shot of doing good versus a comparative certainty of doing good. Um, though he convinces himself that he can't, but again yeah, both both Neil and Sharon were saying the lesson learned here is call your mother call your way. That's obviously a take home. That's obviously a a uh, take-home uh, message here, but but notice also why doesn't he go to Doriath? What is the what is his rationale for not going to Doriath? Part of his rationale is they don't need me; they're fine, right? In fact, they're good. They're in Doriath. Well, I mean, what more can I do, right? I'm not going to make them more safe by going. oh, now you've got the Girdle of Melian plus me, so now you're much more safe than you were with just the girdle of million, um, Yeah, sure, right, and that makes sense, but that's not his only rationale. Nay, it is better as things be, for by my wrath and rash deeds I cast a shadow wherever I dwell. If I go back to Doriath, I'm just going to screw things up in Doriath, so better for me to avoid it. I will leave them in peace unshadowed for a while. Um, hold on to this, we'll come back to Turin's sense of his shadow, in fact, let's end with that um, one more one evening of the golden autumn, they that is Turin and Nienor, excuse me Niniel, uh, sat together, and the sun set yeah, and the sun set on the hillside and the houses of and, and the houses of aglow, and there was a deep quiet. Then Niniel said to him, Of all things I have now asked the name save you. What are you called? <laughs> Waited, quite. Don't ask Turin what his name is. Turmbar, he answered. Then she paused as if listening for some echo, but she said, And what does that say? Or is it just the name for you alone? It means, said he, Master of the Dark Shadow. For I also, Niniel, had my darkness, in which dear things were lost, but now I have overcome it, I deem. "'And did you also flee from it, running, "'until you came to these fair woods?' she said. "'And when did you escape, Turambar?' "'Yes,' he answered, "'I fled for many years, "'and I escaped when you did so. "'For it was dark when you came, Ninio. "'but ever since it has been light, "'and it seems to me "'that what I long sought in vain has come to me.' "'And as he went back to his house in the twilight, "'he said to himself, How then Eleth, from the green mound she came.' Is that a sign? And how should I read it? Um, let me uh, let me preface this by saying the dramatic irony in the lines in this speech are exquisitely painful. Um, it was dark when you came, Niniel, but ever since it has been light, and it seems to me that what I long sought in vain has come to me. Oh, It hurts so much. Um, Anyway. That's part of what makes this story so effective as a tragedy. However, the main thing that I want to emphasize about this passage, this is at the top of my list, the very, very top of my list of passages in the expanded version which make much more so, which really deepened my appreciation of the story compared to the shorter version that we get in The Silmarillion. Turin's naming of himself Turinbar um, is something that was actually a stumbling block for me in my reading of The Silmarillion. Um, it didn't make sense. if there was if That was the one thing that more than anything else led me to sort of be dismissive um, with uh, with of, of, of Turin, of Turin's character. Like anybody who would come to that stage in his life, who's been through all the stuff that he's been through, who has seen all the stuff that he has seen, and can then confidently say, let's say I need a new name, I think I'm going to call myself Master of Doom, because I have obviously kicked the butt of fate. I mean, me and fate, the, you know, you, 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 I stand back and look at my life and I think, why don't we tally up the score between me and fate? Oh yeah, I'm the winner, that's me. That's how I always understood Turambar. I'm going to call myself Master of Doom because I, it's, it's inexplicable, you know. And and my response to that was, in a sense, just being like, I, I, I can't even understand this person. You know, it doesn't make any sense to me. This passage clears that up almost completely for me. His translation of Turambar is not master of the fates of Arda. Notice the parallel between the name that Turin takes for himself here at the end and the name that Morgoth gives to himself in his conversation with Hurin. He's not calling himself master of fate. Master of the dark shadow. Um, Master of doom is what his name means. But how he is defining doom is not fate, but Morgoth's curse right? He is saying... He names himself Turambar because he hopes he has escaped and therefore defeated Morgoth's curse. Now, that's still cocky, but it's a totally different breed of cocky. It's a breed of cocky in line with his, I'm gonna die valiantly. I'm gonna resist Morgoth. Um, uh, And and indeed, we see him... uh, We see his name, in a sense, leading him in exactly that same direction. Um... Yeah, so Don, I I don't think... you know. Don is asking why the strange translation again. I don't think he he believes that the literal word-for-word translation of Turambar means Master of the Dark Shadow. Rather, that is the significance he is giving to the word doom. When he's thinking Master of Doom, the doom he has in mind is Morgoth's doom. The fate that Morgoth has placed upon him. The curse, the dark shadow of Morgoth. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um... Good yeah Kay says it's not it's not uh you know uh, sort of megamaniacal cocky it's singing in the dark cocky it's they sang as they slew cocky uh, yeah yeah that that kind of spirit is what it seems to have uh more for me um, and he's not even being foolhardy here in a sense because he's keeping himself secret um he's he's uh, uh that is to say he's he's not being. Openly, defi- even though his name shows that he is defying Morgoth, he's not going to su- submit to Morgoth's curse. Which you'll notice he was almost doing in that previous choice that he made. I'm not going to go to Doriath because wherever I go, things get messed up. Right? This shadow follows me. I'm going to leave them unshadowed. There is an element there which is submission to Morgoth. Right? I, I, I. Just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm shadowed, and there's nothing I can do. Other than to try to save, um, uh, 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 other than to try to save my, my my kinsman from that shadow, he's not submitting to the shadow here, and his name says, "No, I'm not going to submit to the shadow." Okay, again, that, it's um, uh, Brent asks, "Are the capital letters indicative of Morgoth here?" Yes, I believe so. I believe that the that's how I read the capitalization of "Dark Shadow" there. Um, uh, Roy says, Roy points out that Turin never does sing. Uh, yeah, you're right. He doesn't ever sing. Um, uh, I don't think he ever sings. tour sings. is a great singer. is the greatest of the human singers, we're told, right? Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh good, very good. Both Charlie and Josh at the same time uh recalled, yes, he sings he does make a song for Beleg. Yep, he sings. It's a lamentation, of course. Hey, naturally that's what they, if Turin does sing, he's gonna sing a lamentation. But yep, yep, no, that's right. The song for Beleg. Well remembered. Um Yeah, yeah. Good. Um Well, I was going to talk about incest, but we're out of time. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Am I, what, um yeah, I was about to say we'll do incest next time. But let me let me let me rephrase. Um, tomorrow, during the bonus session, which is going to be at a different link, which I am going to post within the next ten minutes. Um, w- we will. We'll finish up a, a couple things. I have a couple more. Uh, of course, I want to look at the suicide passages. Um, so we'll we'll try to finish up with those things, and then we'll um, and then I'll take as many questions as I can. But it's already late, uh, and uh, poor Yana has to go to work soon because uh, <laughs> it's already dawn over there. Uh, so anyway. Um, I, so uh I please do join me if you can 4 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow uh and we will we will finish this up and we will Oh yes Roy Roy you're in Israel I didn't realize that Roy yeah yeah it's uh pretty late over there too um anyway so th- again again I always am so grateful uh and humbled by the uh the dedication of those of you who are joining us in the middle of the night um Anyway, so we'll we'll finish uh, talking about Turin's story, and then we'll do some we'll do some q that uh, we'll do some Q and A, uh, and and uh, then we'll be all ready to start the Second Age next week. That is going to happen. Uh, so anyway, thanks very much. I will see you guys uh, see some of you I hope uh, soon, and I'm going to post the recording here uh, of tonight very soon. So um, see you guys later. Bye.